Project Sapient is a podcast meant to engage our brothers and sisters in law enforcement and military communities in conversations that we all know we need to have. All opinions you'll hear are our own, are protected by our First Amendment of the United States Constitution, and in no way reflect or are meant to reflect the opinion of any specific agency, officer, or service member. Some opinions may be controversial. Listener discretion is advised. Enjoy. Mr. Iman. Hey. How are you, sir? Um, I'd say, I don't know. Go with the sponsors. I'll think of a good word. What kind of fruity fucking drink are you having now, buddy? Buddy, do not make me throw this at you. I will fucking iced tea lemonade this fucking, uh, this fucking hit. I want some in my mouth. <laughs> Guys, Project Sapien, check us out. ProjectSapiens.org. Shoot us an email. ProjectSapien2020 at gmail.com. We have tens of thousands of listeners all over the world. We cannot be thankful, more thankful. Thank you very much for making us the number one military and law enforcement podcast on the planet, guys. We have awesome supporters, DCD Automotive, which is the Bach Group, Till Valhalla, AAA Police Supply, Havoc Journal, our partners in the profiles in Havoc, Fit Cops, 22 Mohawks. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. TikTok's under police podcast, guys. Really, thank you. Can you believe this has happened, Iman? I, I know. It's, uh, it's it's pretty cool. Oh, tell them about your shirt. Oh, yeah. Hey, uh, so you guys are going to see uh, on video with uh, Till Valhalla Project. Uh, they're coming out with a new series or new campaign about ending the stigma for uh, mental health, PTSD. Um, Can they know. buy it now? Or? Yeah, it's about to get launched. I will let you guys know when they cool. officially launch these shirts. Uh, but it's pretty cool. You know, you support them. They support all kinds of organizations for PTSD, TBI, you name it, uh, they do it. So uh, also give them a follow, Instagram, TikTok, they're, they're everywhere. Uh, so Till Valhalla Project, thank you guys. So keep doing what you're doing. Very cool, man. All right, we got a very interesting cat on the phone. Yeah. They're on video, yeah. Jack Sparks. Yeah, so uh, Jack actually, um, he, he kind of stumbled into uh, Project sapient through havoc journal oh okay uh read a couple of my awesome uh, articles because i'm awesome and uh, and uh so i got to talk to him for a little bit and he has a very very interesting perspective and an untold story uh involving the global war on terrorism a story that's not really talked about too much so uh without further ado let's bring jack on jack you're on buddy how are you Hey guys, thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for coming on, man. And thank you for your service and everything you've done for our country. Thank you. So Jack, uh, when we uh, were talking, we were talking about this untold story. And if you want to go into your background, we didn't really, uh, I didn't really say much. I didn't really put out much on who, who you are and yeah, what, yeah. what you've done. Uh, so the floor is yours. Yeah, if you introduce go into, yourself. Yeah, go into your history a little bit and, and uh, we'll, we will uh, go from there. Sure. I uh, started out as a cop at a little small six-man police department in northeastern Kentucky uh, back in the 80s. Um, I was there about seven years, uh, uh, got to be a detective there, uh, went to a regional narcotics task force and started working with DEA. That's how I found out about DEA. So, uh, applied for DEA in 1996, got hired, uh, spent 26 years with, uh, with DEA and I, I just retired in March. Uh, it's been a great ride. Um, uh, served all over, 
all over the U.S. and and, and all over the world. Uh, I was in Miami, San Antonio, uh, D.C., uh, went overseas, uh, did Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, was the uh, country attache in Cyprus for a while. We covered uh, Syria, Jordan, Israel, Lebanon. Uh, so uh, uh, I got to see the world on per diem pretty much. How long? Sometimes over the barrel of a rifle, but yeah. <laughs> hey, I got to see it. How long were you in Cyprus for? I was there a little over four years. No kidding, huh? It's an interesting place. Oh, yeah, it was great. Uh, lived in Nicosia, worked out of the embassy. Uh, it's the last divided capital in Europe. You know, there's a UN peacekeeping force still there. Uh, Turkey invaded there in uh, 1974. Uh, Turkish Cypriots have still have the northern part of the island, and uh, Greek Cypriots have the southern part, and there's a peacekeeping force in the middle. So. A, lot of, a lot of people don't know about the history of Cyprus, and uh, even to this day, there's a lot of... Uh, Cyprus is known for a big... Uh, I want to call it a banking community. <laughs> And I'm, I'm sure Jack knows exactly where I'm going with that. Um, it's 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 kind of one of those places where if you can't do the Cayman Islands and all that, you can, yeah. you can do Cyprus. Uh, that's, that's the way it is over there, man. Uh, that part I see of him world. smiling over there. there uh, it was an interesting time there when uh, when the bank collapse happened in Greece. Yeah. And it, it kind of reverberated over there. So it, it made for some interesting times there. Yeah, man. So we want to get people educated. I hate using that word, but we want to get people educated as to the DEA's involvement in the global war on terror. Um, a lot of people don't realize that there was a lot of support going on and there was a lot of active operations going on overseas in Afghanistan, right? Right. And we want to get people... It's, uh, it, 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 go on. I'm sorry. I was going to say it evolved over time after 9-11. So tell, walk us through anything you want to walk us through with that, man. I mean, we have, or keep in mind, we have civilian listeners and we also have law enforcement and military, obviously, but we try and um, keep things a little OPSEC for the civilians, but just enough to get them to understand what's going on. Sure. Um, it's probably appropriate to, to start at the beginning, uh, which would be September 11th, 2001. Uh, I was a pretty young agent, uh, I, I was on a tactical team uh, working out of San Antonio. It was the old uh, regional enforcement teams. Uh, there were four of those spread around the country, and we responded to stuff all over the United States and deployed. And uh, it was a fairly new team. It hadn't been set up very long. And uh, myself and a couple other guys uh, on September the 11th were at the San Antonio airport getting ready to fly to Harlingen to do an advance for deployment. And uh, as we walked through the terminal of the airport, you could see people around one TV in the airport, like, I don't know, hundreds of people. And I was like, wow, that's really unusual. <laughs> and I walked up and I'm standing on the outside of the crowd watching uh, the uh, World Trade Center burn. And as I'm standing there, the second plane comes into the frame and flies into the, to the second building. So, so we knew at that yeah. point that, that something was going on. So we go ahead, we go down to our gate uh, to try to catch our flight. And shortly thereafter, they shut down all air traffic in, in the U.S. Everything was grounded. And then back then, we were still carrying pagers, and, and we had a cell phone as well. And shortly thereafter, you know, our pagers started going off, 911 from the office. And we called in, and they were like, go home, pack some clothes, get your tack bag, and report to the office. And we did that and uh, sat there for the next three weeks, that whole team, waiting on the call to go to New York and uh 
we never got deployed. It never came. So uh, that kind of pissed me off, you know. Uh, yeah, you wanted you wanted in the fight. So uh, yeah, a- absolutely. And uh, I spent the next uh, two years or so trying to figure out a way to to make that happen. And then uh, in 2004, uh, DEA had opened a, a, a country office in the old embassy there in Kabul. And they had staffed it with two or three agents, and they were for guys to uh, go over TDY to support that office so they could get it stood up fully. So uh, I volunteered. I was lucky enough to get picked and uh, went over to Afghanistan the first time in uh, 2004. And uh, that was pretty early in in, in the war, so it, it was kind of like the Wild Wild West. Uh, whatever you can make happen, you, you made happen. And, you know, I always say you drop a couple of DEA guys anywhere with $5, they'll, they'll come back with something, right? <laughs> so that, that's basically what we we, uh, we spent several months over there running around with the uh, Afghani uh, counter-narcotics police. Uh, we were driving thin-skinned pickup trucks then. Uh, IEDs weren't that much of a threat yet. They hadn't really caught on. So everywhere we were going, uh, we were driving around in thin-skinned trucks and uh, Hiluxes. And uh, we didn't have a lot of military support. Uh, the military hadn't really bought in to, to what we were trying to do, which was uh, stem the funding flow to the Taliban because uh, most of their money uh, comes from the sale of heroin and opium. So we were trying to interdict heroin, opium, and, and drug labs to cut that money flow off. So that's basically what we were doing. We were running ops with the uh, Afghani cops over there. So towards the end of that tour, uh, the higher-ups, the country attache at the time, John O'Rourke and, and people out of headquarters kind of recognized, hey, we're doing some good stuff here, but um, we really need to develop some specialized units that we can work with. So uh, uh they came up with the idea of, of creating an Afghan uh, police commando unit uh, called the National Interdiction Unit. And uh, I got tagged to uh, go up to Jalalabad and spend three weeks on the ground running around with uh, a sister agency, uh, recruiting the first 50 recruits uh, for that police unit. And uh, we did that and I got them on a bus and we got them back to Kabul. And, uh, you know, we had... Uh, Contractors come in and train them up in small unit tactics and DEA trained them up in, in investigative techniques. And uh, we were off and running there in 2004. So uh, there were probably five or six guys in the office then, and it was being supplemented by, by TDYs. And we didn't have a whole lot of support. We were just getting started. So I came home at the end of that tour thinking, OK, I've, I've done my part, you know, went over. I did what I could do. I'm kind of done with this. and. Uh, basically just went back to work in, in Texas and, uh, 2005 rolls around and, uh, you know, it was a pretty, uh, uh, rough time in, in what was going on in Iraq. We were about two years into, uh, Iraq then. And, uh, you know, I, I get a call from a buddy of mine. who was a staff coordinator at headquarters one day and, uh, he was in the foreign ops section and he's like, uh, Hey, uh, would you be interested in going to Iraq? And I'm like, to do what? And he's like, well, uh, we're going to detail you over to the uh, FBI counterterrorism division and we need you to go over for 90 days and help them out to uh, build a Iraqi police unit to deal with high level criminal activity, terrorism, murder, kidnapping, sectarian violence. So I was like, okay, I'm in, you know, so uh, wasn't too long thereafter. I uh, found myself at Fort Hood uh, getting on a transport plane with uh, two U.S. Marshals from their special operations group and uh, we flew over to uh, Baghdad and uh, helped the FBI f- set up a, uh, a specialized Iraqi unit. Uh, 
to deal with large criminal activity there. And uh, I was pretty fortunate. Uh, we spent most of that tour training, but but I got to go out with them a couple of times out into the red zone around Baghdad and uh, do a couple operations before I left. Uh, we went out and recovered a murder victim, and then uh, uh, we conducted a raid on a, a legally ran detention facility and uh, finished that tour up. So uh, while I was there, I got picked up to be on the uh, executive protection detail for the head of the agency. So I came back, we moved to DC and I did that for about three years and uh, roll around to about 2009, the Obama administration decided uh, they were going to do a troop surge into Afghanistan and uh, they were going to do a civilian surge too with the state department and uh, DEA and uh, DEA grew the program up to about a hundred personnel. Oh, wow. Um, special agents. Yeah. Special agents, Intel analysts, uh, they made it its own region. So that, that was in 09. Uh, so I, I was kind of ready for a change. I've been doing uh, executive protection for about three years and I was tired. So I was ready for, to do something else. So I put in, uh, got promoted, got selected, uh, got sent to the lovely Camp Guernsey, Wyoming in the dead of winter for uh, the train up. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Which was, which was pretty interesting. Uh, uh, did that and then, uh, you know, deployed over, uh, in 2009 and, and I was lucky to be one of the first group supervisors for DEA that, that got in there during the surge. So as guys started to flow in, you know, I, I kind of got to pick the guys that I wanted coming in and, uh, I managed to put the, pick the guys that, that formed one of the best groups we had over there. Uh, I had a guy that was a uh, former uh, in the second ranger battalion, had a guy that had been an 82nd airborne, uh, uh, had a couple of SWAT cops. Uh, I mean, it was, it, it was a completely good unit. And, uh, we got that set up, uh, by the time I had got back in 2009, the uh, National Interdiction Unit that we had been forming in 2004 had, had grown to about probably about 300 uh, Afghan police commandos. Uh, they had a base camp uh, out behind uh, Hamid Karzai Airport, and uh, we were actually living with them on their base camp then. Mm. And then uh, DEA, with the help of CENTCOM, had come in and built uh, four forward operating bases for DEA and in, in strategic different parts of the country there. Uh, there was one in uh, Jalalabad, one in Herat, uh, one in Kandahar and one in Kunduz. So DEA staffed all those uh, with agents and uh, we lived with, with the Afghan commandos at those different FOBs forward deployed, uh, conducting, conducting operations all over the country. Uh, and basically uh, the way it worked when we first started was, uh, you know, by that time, DEA had developed its FAST program. Uh, so you had FAST guys that would come in and deploy for 90 to 120 days at a time. And uh, FAST were DEA special agents that uh, went through specialized training. Um, uh, they were trained up by uh, U.S. Army SOF, and then uh, they were being deployed on rotation to Afghanistan. And they would come in. Uh, I would have my group prepare uh, basically interdiction target packages when we knew those guys were coming and they would come in and we would link up and, and brief these operations. And then boom, we were off and running. They would lay on military support and we would go out and 
blow up drug labs, interdict drug shipments, uh, whatever we could do to stem the flow of narcotics. Uh, and that, that worked really well for a while. And then uh, uh, fast focus kind of shift shifted down south to southern Afghanistan. And when they started coming in, they would go down to like Kandahar, Helmand, and they were working quite a bit with uh, Task Force Trident down there, which was uh, SEALs and Australian SAS. So that kind of left uh, the guys up north and out east. You know, we had target packs, but we didn't have any way to, to, to execute them without military support. So, uh, you know, my guys came to me one day and they're like, look, we want, we, we want to run these operations and execute these target packages. And I'm like, hey, I'm with you. And they're like, what do you, I'm, what, what do you think? And they're like, let's go talk to uh, Norsaw. So the Norwegians had, had a, had a uh, soft unit that was based in Kabul then, uh, they were training up a, a critical response unit, uh, uh, which was triple two, which was basically the, the, the SWAT team, uh, for Kabul. And they responded to all kind of crisis incidents and, uh, hostage shaking and, uh, car bombings and stuff like that. And, uh, Norwegians were training them up. So we just got in the car one day and, uh, drove over to their camp and I banged on the door and the slot come open. Who are you and what do you want? And uh, I was kind of like, hey, I am who I think I am. And uh, I think we can help each other out. And I want to talk to your ops officer. So uh, surprisingly, they let us in and we went in with some target packs and met with them. And, uh, you know, they agreed to work with us. And uh, about a week later, we ran our first operation against a drug lab out east in Nangahar, went in, blew it up. And uh, the rest <laughs> is history. We, we started working together. Uh, we ran with the, with those guys for about uh, five months, and then there was a rip. They ripped out, and uh, the New Zealand Special Air Service came in uh, to replace them. And uh, the Norwegians really did us a solid and gave us a good handover to uh, to the Kiwis. And uh, we ended up ended up working with those guys for for about eighteen months uh, for the length of their deployment. You know, and uh, we ran all over the country with them, and uh, you know they treated us like brothers and. Uh, they treated us like equals and i'm here to tell you i wasn't an equal to any of those guys I, I couldn't carry the water i mean they were they were a tier one unit for their country and uh you know it was a highlight of my career though those two years um so, so jack, uh, yeah jack uh, i actually I got, got a quick question yeah jack a quick question on, on our end so just i'm gonna back up just for a little bit uh back in 2004 when uh, you guys first linked up um with the Afghani uh, police, uh, the the uh, narco counter their narcotics uh, police, um, what what were they like? Were they were they like you know kind of uh, uh, solid unit, or it sounded like you needed to train them up a certain way in order to get them operational? They were they were they were op in two thousand and four. We were working with the counter narcotics police yeah. Afghanistan CNPA, yeah. okay, which was just the regular dope. Okay. Um, they, they were operational. Uh, they were a unit, um, that was, um, they were being trained up. It was kind of, it was kind of, kind of on the job training, I guess. Gotcha. Uh, gotcha. Uh, we were working and training as we went, basically. So I'm assuming there was a lot of SAG guys and, and all that stuff that were in country doing all, a lot of the training and all that. Yeah. Um, a lot of the training was, uh, was contracted out. Uh, Blackwater, back when there was a Blackwater, did did a yeah. lot of that. They brought guys in, former soft guys, to train them up in like small unit tactics. 
and then uh, retired DEA guys or, or actual agents that were still on the job, you know, were taking care of uh, training them up in investigations intel gathering stuff like that so a, a lot of people don't realize and, and this goes especially more to the civilian part of yeah. our listeners a lot of people don't realize the dynamics that guys like jack were thrust into yeah going into an area where i jack doesn't look like he has a background in the middle east right <laughs> and and that's no offense to you jack i'm just saying the the obvious you know you're not iman who has a background in the middle east and the culture and the language and all that stuff you know, so a lot of these agents were th were used to doing things in a certain way here, and all of a sudden were thrust into this dynamic. Well, that's that's the way it was for the army when when Afghanistan kicked off. Yeah, you're talking going into a country that is still in the dark ages. Right. You know, so so it was very different for everybody. So you're you're thrusting, you know, you're trying to get in between the military might. Yep. Right. The military operations. Guys like Jack and, and federal agents are going over there. They're getting thrust into the culture. The, 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 the culture there in the region is, has been turned upside oh, down. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Night and day. Yeah. He's dealing with, he's trying to deal with, you know, the, uh, the warlords, yep. the tribal leaders, yep. the drug dealers, everybody that's there. Like, the amount of sheer finesse that a lot of this stuff needed, that was needed. Like, I look up to guys like Jack that went over there because- he was getting bombarded, not literally, obviously. Well, probably literally too. <laughs> but he was getting bombarded from all sides so, trying to deal with these things. Exactly. So that's where someone like Jack. Now, I don't know, Jack, if you've heard the, the uh, acronym of the term UW. Unconventional warfare? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you, you've, you've heard of UW. So, so that's big with uh, special forces, you know, doing the, the UW missions in which you go in to advise, to train up, to get these guys, you know, the indigenous population to a certain level where they're able to self-sustain and do what they got to do with the backing of U.S. military personnel. Now, this would be sort of an opposite where I picture it more, okay, we're law enforcement, we're over there doing our, our drug work. Uh, with them now we need to train them up get into a good relationship with them xyz and now move on to operations that's sort of a similar mindset of unconventional warfare um and it's interesting that it, it it's exactly that um and and it, it it's very interesting to me you hit on that because it, it was basically the exact same mission and it kind of morphed more into that uh i went but i came back uh, in two, 2011 and uh was like okay i'm done and then uh 2016 rolled around and and i had the opportunity to go back and run the program uh for dea in afghanistan and pakistan and it had changed a lot then um after uh benghazi in 13 uh the state department kind of clamped down on on stuff that we were doing and We'd given up all the outer fobs and turned them over to the Afghanis and and had collapsed back to Kabul and uh, were basically tied to the embassy then. Yeah. Uh, so we weren't living out at the NIU compound anymore with the uh, NIU. So um, we needed somebody to fill that void. So uh, uh, I managed to uh, uh, we managed to get U.S. Special Forces to to uh, assign an A team to go pick that mission up and, and, and basically continue that. Yeah. So I mean, we actually you, had us soft in there. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Uh, I think uh, what uh, now I'm, I'm 
going to venture to guess that when you linked up with uh, the soft units, uh, especially Army Special Forces and these units that conduct these types of operations worldwide, they saw their missions aligned with you. And probably that's why it was an easy, e easy sell to morph the missions together where, yeah, we're, we're basically doing the same thing, just two different agencies doing it, uh, essentially. So it sounded like you just wanted to combine it together, right, and go out, do missions together, because you could teach the Afghanis, uh, which is kind of interesting, because I saw it in Iraq with the Iraqi police when we would go into the Iraqi police academies and to, you know, oversee and take a look at the training and all that. And it's funny for, for us because, you know, we're, we're so invested in the U.S. constitutional law and our various state laws and stuff like that and, and trying to apply some semblance of law and order in their <laughs> procedures of how they collect evidence, right. of how they, you know, conduct investigations. It must have been a, a difficult concept to bring across to a whole different mindset that's over there. It, it 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 was difficult. Um, it, you're kind of walking a, a very thin line. You're you're walking a tightrope there, really. Uh, at the end of the day, you you want to spread rule of law. That's what we're about, you know, rule of law. And and then you've got cultural issues that you're dealing with. Uh, you know, you're far from home on the other side of the world. So yeah, it's it's kind of a tightrope day to day. So Jack, explain to uh, Iman and I know this. Uh, we know this very well, but explain to the people that don't know this, the importance of the drug trade and what it was doing for the Afghanis and their uh, monetary, you know, their workflows and how important it was for them. Yeah, so so most of the terrorist networks over there, Haqqani, uh, ISIS-K, the Taliban for sure, they derive a major part of their proceeds from the sale of heroin and opiates. Opium. Anywhere from 80, I've heard, to 90% of the world's heroin, it comes out of Afghanistan. Uh, it's transported over to Africa for further distribution into Europe and from Europe over to the United States and Canada. So heroin coming out of there goes all over the world. And all that money coming back in from those sales of narcotics, the Taliban and other terrorists, entities were using that to buy beans, bullets, and guns, and bombs. Well, that's why with the term, you know, narco-terrorism, it's real. Yeah. You know, where you get funding for terrorism yeah. through narcotics. I don't think people realize the, the, I mean, the, the, the massive amount of money that is funded, you know, just like because, you know, doing some of the, uh, when I was on the uh, DA task force, doing some yeah. of the high-end more drug work where, you know, you're tracking shipments that were from Afghanistan making their way through the pipeline, through the drug pipeline all across Europe into Canada and into, you know, down through the border where you're tracking that movement. Yeah. And people don't realize how much money that gives the Al-Qaeda, the ISIS, the Taliban, like where that money, because that money just doesn't go only to the Taliban. It, it may go to the Taliban, but then it gets funded out. They're, you know, it's, well, it's, it's, it's also funding. like, it's almost like a banking system for them too. Yeah. Like if they're, they're trading, you know what I mean? Yeah. There's, there's money being made. There's interest being made. The only yeah. people that are getting fucked are the people that are on the ground working the leaves yeah. Yeah. or, or yeah. working the butt. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. That's the only people that are getting fucked. Yeah. And I mean, they're in the evil sense 
themselves for doing what they do, but they probably don't know any better. They don't know any and better. Some of them are forced to do <laughs> yeah, it too, yeah. right? But once it leaves, once it's packaged and once it's leaved, people don't realize, like you said, the vast infrastructure that's being funded by all this shit. Yeah. You know, well, I, I remember seeing a video actually. So during an investigation, uh, I think this was back in 2019, 2018, 2019 era, you know, uh, when I was working at the task force. And I remember we get a video um, and there was Arabic writing on the packages. And one of the guys, you know, one of the agents knew I, you know, I speak Arabic. I read Arabic. He's like, hey, I mean, uh, I know this looks Arabic. Uh, what does it say? I'm like, oh, it says heroin in Arabic. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's the uh, shipment of heroin is making its way over to the U.S. That That's what it says right now. So, uh, you know, it, again, it, it kind of shows you that heroin is a large part of that economy because of so much, you know, the opium that's over there um, that helps fund them. You know, and, and that's the thing. I, I don't think people realize the amount of, of time it takes or the amount of investigative needs, the resources that it needs, and what we really need to do to combat that, and especially with, with narco-terrorism, because in the end, that's what funds ISIS, that's what funds Al-Qaeda, that's what funds Taliban, and all these various terrorist organizations around the world, that's that's what they're using for, for money. So so now, when, when you guys, you know, on the ground down there, especially later on, once the program's developed and you have FAST with you, and you're uh, interdicting a lot more and using uh, the SOF community and it sounds like you had a multinational type task force which is pretty cool especially you know new zealand sas and and i think with norwegians you said at one point uh you know you'd knock on the door and they're like hey i'm here do you guys want to work together which is kind of cool again it goes back into uw where you just kind of knock on the door and be like hey you want to work together and you just go um did you guys uh, uncover like large caches of, of money that would belong to the Taliban as a result of the heroin trade that was making its way back or interdicted it, let's say, in uh, Europe? In transit. You know, in transit, when you guys re realize, hey, they're getting a huge shipment of money uh, on its way. Did you guys get any, any sort of work that way also? We, we would get work like that. Um, uh, there was a case where... Uh, we were able to uh, uh, go into some Hawala, Hawala Dars, and uh, uh, I wasn't involved in this, but but some of the fast guys did it, and uh, it's being worked out of our special operations division back here. They they went into uh, a, a Hawala market up in Jabad and and basically took took a bunch of books from this Hawala Dar that was moving money all over the world, right? And uh, it basically shut the economy down in the entire Nangahar province for like a week yeah. to, to the point where you had government officials calling, you have to give those books back, you know? Um, so yeah, there was money movement going on all over the world there. Tell people your experience. If you, if you can, Jack, tell people your experience with the local politicians, the installed politicians after, you know, after the initial invasions and, and all the military ops and all that stuff. Uh, it, it, it's, you know, some were great, some were good and some were bad. It, it, it's kind of like anything else, you know, I mean, uh, and then a lot of that too goes back into, to, to taking the time and the effort and putting it in to learn the culture, you know, um, I, I don't want this to sound bad, but I, I, I mean, when you're, when you're doing like a UW mission, like I was talking about and, and you're living with these guys and, and things like that, and you're, you're trying to accomplish something, don't be the ugly American. Right. You know, yep. uh, I, I mean, they're, they're, they're your teammate too. You know, you, you got to take care of them. Right. 
So take the time to learn the culture and, uh, and take care of those guys and they'll take care of you. You know, um, uh, saying that reminded me of, of what happened, you know, uh, during the pullout here, uh, oh, this yeah. past year, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I, I went, I went like two weeks. I was sleeping like two, three hours a night. You yeah, know, I mean, same. my phone was ringing. I was getting emails. I was getting private messages, you know, uh, please help me. Please get me out of here. Yeah. If you can't get me out of here, I understand, but can you get my family out of here? You know, I mean, it was, it, it, it was a bad time, a bad time, that, you know? Yeah. Uh, that, that's what people we, don't we were also able the, to get a, get a few on. Also with the, with the pullout, people didn't realize. We were just, able to get a few on. Yeah. 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 yeah the, with the pullout, people didn't realize like the amount of allies that we had, not just militarily, but assets. DEA, FBI, yeah. all these assets that we had, uh, that we built even in, in Iraq was the same way when the fall of, you know, when ISIS took over, it was like, it was like, we just abandoned our allies that we developed for over 20 years of war. And you just wipe your hand and say, see you later. You're like, wait a minute. Like, that's not the way it works. You know, you can't just clean your hands and say, see you later and just no. dump your allies. You know, I, it, it was probably a good thing that I, that I came home in, in 19 when I did, because if, if I had still been there, I, I, I would have had a really hard time. Yeah. There. Yeah. You I know, mean, uh, it's, 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 it's a, it's a tough thing to do when, especially you and, you know, you and, and others, uh, vet, combat veterans who invested literally blood, uh, you know, uh, over there, um, building relationships, getting to know the culture, get, becoming close friends with some of your allies, because in reality, people don't realize this. There's actually a lot of really good patriotic um, individuals in those countries that want to see their country successful, that want to see freedom in their country more than anything. And people here take that for granted. They don't see it. You know, you're like, you know, the freedoms you have here, you know, Americans are spoiled. <laughs> spoiled rotten. I, I mean, I learned that early on when I came home from Iraq and I'm looking at these civilians bitching about whatever they're bitching. And I'm like, dude, shut the fuck up. Yeah. Like, <laughs> there's far more important things to fucking worry about than whatever your, your Starbucks coffee was fucked up or whatever. You know, it's, it's like the meltdowns around here just drove me nuts. That, that, that's one of the reasons why I had a hard time assimilating back into uh, society is because of that. You're like, are you kidding me? I, I, I say it's a, a friend of a friend of mine all the time. And like they, and they don't realize how bad it is around the world, but that's also the beauty of this country and how it was built and what we've sacrificed to build it this way, where we can sit and, you know, be in the air conditioned rooms and bitch about our drinks. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? And people don't understand that. Yeah. And that's where it's, it's good to have, obviously you, Iman, but guys like Jack from, you know, the, the DEA point of view of what was going on. I guarantee you there's going to be people listening to this that are going to be like, the DEA was. Yeah. I told you. You know what I mean? Even to this day, people have no idea what DEA yeah, stands for. You know, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I get that a lot, you know, and I, I always say that 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 what happened there is the greatest untold story of the GWAT, the global war on terror, right? I mean, uh, I mean, the military story's been told, and it's been told really well, as it should have been. You know, books, movies, documentaries, the CIA story, you know, like Jawbreaker, Zero Dark Third, I, great. You know, it's it's been told. But what federal law enforcement did overseas after 9-11 that that really hadn't been told i mean it's been touched on a little bit bob Mueller, the former fbi director touched on it a couple of times admiral mcraven spoken about it a time or two but it's really never been touched on i mean we lost guys there uh october 26 2009 uh we lost three guys there in a helo crash out west uh 
they had gone in with uh, SF and uh, 160th uh, SOAR, Night Stalkers, to hit Opium and Weapons Bazaar out in a place called Bogdis. And uh, they went in, uh, cleared the bazaar, uh, did what they needed to do. And as they were exfiling, they got in a tick, uh, troops in contact there. They were able to suppress it. And uh, as they were exfiling, uh, one of the helos crashed. And uh, uh, we lost uh, three agents there. Uh, Mike Weston, who was with the country office. Uh, Chad Michael, who was on fast. And uh, Forrest Lehman, who was on fast. And then uh, we lost 560 SOAR guys and uh, two of our brothers from the 7th uh, SF group, you know, uh, October 26, 2009, you know, Arcane 2-2 was called sign of that bird, you know, so there's not a lot of people that that know about that, you know. And that's that's uh, the point and, of and, a lot of what we're trying to do, Jack, is trying to get this message out to people. Like, it, it things like the global war on terror obviously affected everybody in the globe, but they just don't realize the... I, I want to say the, the reality of who it affected. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there was, there was people from the NYPD that were overseas that yeah. people don't realize. Yeah. You know what I mean? Absolutely. People just don't realize how massive of an effect it had on everything. Well, that's the thing. Do you, do you is, was truly a global war on terrorism. It wasn't just Iraq. It wasn't just Afghanistan. Yeah. It was it was all over. We, we do attract the money, the drugs, the shipments, Everywhere. How many operations, without giving shit up, how many operations do you know that were happening in Africa while we were invading Iraq and Afghanistan? Well, we we knew in the military what was going on, but, yeah. but civilians, well, people don't. they have no idea. Right now, Special Forces is in 60 countries. Yeah. Operational. Yeah. Army, Army Special Forces. And I'm sure they're being supplemented with the DEA yeah. still oh, yeah. and the oh, FBI yeah. Yeah, and yeah, all yeah. that. So, guys, yeah. it wasn't just Iraq and Afghanistan. It's continuously going. Well, That's why it, it comes back to when we bitch about our Starbucks, yeah. when we bitch about our drinks, our Zoas, I love saying that, <laughs> but when we bitch about it, they don't understand the complexity of everything involved. That, that's the thing. I think, I think Jack with, with what you did, what you, with what you did over there is kind of like one of the trailblazing in terms of combining that federal agencies with, uh, with, uh, soft communities, uh, to, basically we hey we we're we're on the same mission guys let's let's go do it and i think that combination right there really also opened up the military because i remember when i was in back in 05 and and even training up and everything we knew we had other assets to that we that is that was in our disposal such as federal agencies that were in country, whether it was FBI, DEA, ATF, whoever, whomever was there, we knew we had additional support if we needed it. And if they, if these uh, federal agencies needed our support, same thing. It, it kind of turned into this, again, this global war, this, this multidisciplinary approach to the drug trade, to terrorism to even uh, like you said when you said uh, in iraq about the kidnappings yeah I, i've worked those cases too as, as a as a soldier you know where human trafficking was human a major part of you know shit. where i remember uh, during uh, one of our ops a, a kurdish a couple kurdish guys came up to me and gave me all sorts of intel about how they're getting carjacked on the way down to baghdad to go to the bank because that's the closest bank for them but insurgents were waiting for them to cross over Kurdish territory, you know, drive south on, uh, I don't know if you remember uh, uh, Route Tampa. You probably, you've probably been on Route Tampa where it runs all the way up, you know, MSR Tampa runs all the way up to Mosul and Kurdistan, where on Route Tampa, at some point in transit, they were getting carjacked, murdered, money getting taken, and that money 
fun funded Al Qaeda of Iraq, where you know obviously that's a huge problem. That's a huge threat. That's another source of income for Al Qaeda that the U.S. military also had to deal with. So not only were we doing offensive combat, especially like you said, back 04, 05, it was kind of the wild west in both Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, where we were always on the offensive on our end. And to have also the might of the federal agencies and law enforcement to be able to also help us uh, get the job done. And I mean, it, it's huge. And and that's the, the biggest untold story, as, as you said, is the federal law enforcement, the DEAs, the FBI's that were tasked out to the U.S. military to help with the global war. And, and you know, you, you've touched on this before, I mean, I mean a, a lot of that too, I mean, yeah, the higher-ups were like, hey, we're, we're going to put these units here and this and that, and but but a lot of that came down to uh, to ego too. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, you got a lot farther there, you know, going over there and going, hey, brother, I need help. Can you help me? Let's work together here, you know? And, and a lot of what happened there was relationship built. Yeah. It was, it, 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 it was between the guys, you know, yeah. Hey, we got this. Can you help us? You know, we'll go out, we'll work it together. And then if they had something and, and came to us, you know, and, and they needed extra bodies or whatever, we, we would go do it, you know? So it came down to, to, to helping each other, you know? Uh, and one of the, one of the biggest guys during that time frame that, that built that, uh, was a guy by the name of, of Mike Garbo. Uh, he was an agent then he worked for me in Afghanistan. Uh, uh, we, we lived together for two years, you know, over there. Uh, it, it's kind of hard to convey, uh, from the law enforcement side of the house because yeah, we all work hard back here, you know, and we all work long hours and everything, but at the end of the day, you go home, you know, or that's what we're shooting for to go home, yeah. right? To your yeah. family over there. You don't have that. No, you, you live together. Yep. You work together. That, that's you work literally out together, uh, that, you train yeah, together, that, you that, shoot together. That's literally the whole saying of it's only you're, to, you're the man to your left and right, and that's it. That's all you care about. Yeah, it's your family there. Yeah, and uh, uh, over a two-year period, I watched Mike build relationships with with those New Zealand SAS guys, and um, he was phenomenal. And uh, the last time I spoke to him uh, was the day Cobble fell, mm. and. Uh, he made it. He had me laughing. I, I mean, I, I was upset about it. And uh, he turned a couple of things into a joke. He had a dark sense of humor, which <laughs> kind of resonates with me. Yeah. And he had me laughing. And uh, that was the last time I spoke to him. Uh, we lost him in October oh, uh, my God. this past year. Uh, we got ambushed and killed uh, in Tucson uh, doing a train interdiction out there. Oh, that okay. That was oh my god. Yeah, I I read all yeah. about that. Yeah, when when I saw that, I actually reached out to a couple agents that that I worked with here, um, that knew him. Uh, you know, on, on this side, and and I reached out to them. Said, hey, did you guys know him? Yeah, we knew great dude, and it it, it seemed he had a huge impact in the DEA community, just being who he, he is and was. Brother, he was he was unbelievable. He tactically, he was probably the best guy that I've I've ever seen on our side of the house. If uh, if somebody came in and said, "Hey, you got to take a whole house full of terrorists down," that guy would have been my first phone call. Yeah, no you know, shit. Um, he 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 was he was good at everything he did. You know, um, that was probably you know I've been to a lot of ramp ceremonies. I've been to a lot of police and military funerals over a thirty three year career. You yeah. know, and uh, some of them hit me harder than others. That that one killed me. You know. Yeah. Uh, it was like losing my own brother. So that was the hardest trip I ever made. 
yeah. was uh, getting on a plane to fly to Tucson. That, 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 that's the thing. Like uh, in, the, in the military, when, when we lost guys overseas, uh, it was it was a literally part of your family that just died, you know, uh, and, and part of you went with them, too. Uh, especially uh, during combat operations, it's because again, you're you you're not going home at the end of the day. You're going back to your fob, and you got to deal with the aftermath of a bad op or one of our guys dying or or you know whatever that came our way, and you have to deal with it and continue mission the next day. I might have an op the very next day. I might have an op an hour later after we just lost somebody, but you know we we got to continue mission and we have to continue it to honor those that we lost. Uh, just a day ago, you know, and, and, and that's the thing that that tight bond, that brotherhood that you, that is developed at war, whether it's the federal agency side or the military side, it never goes. Uh, I, I still talk to my squad mates, um, like actually I just met up with one of them. He just flew out here to, uh, to our side, uh, for business. And I dropped everything that I was doing to go see him and have a couple drinks and laugh about, you know, some of the stuff we did out in Iraq. And, and it's, it's a brotherhood like no other, you know, when, when, when you're forged in, in, in that war. And, and I think you, you touched on one of the pieces I wrote, you know, what it's like, what would I be if I didn't go to war type of mentality? And, and, it, yeah. and you, you read it and you told me it's, it's like, it hit a hundred percent for you. Yeah, I did. I mean, um, I had some highlights in my career there, you know, uh, that I wouldn't change, you know, but as an experience, the whole thing pretty much sucked. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It did. Uh, being away from your family, sleeping in the field, all that, you know, uh, I mean, it was a suck fest, but I wouldn't change any of it because uh, it, it kind of, it forges you really yeah. uh, into what you are later. Yeah. And, and, and then you got to think about the guys that, uh, that didn't come back. You know, I mean, uh, I, I touched on some of these guys earlier, like Mike Weston, you know, guy was a Harvard law graduate. Okay. He could have gone to wall street and been a millionaire or uh, got with a high price law firm and been a millionaire. He chose not to do that. He chose to serve his country, you know, and uh, and he lost his life over there. So, uh, you know, when you look at stuff like that, you know, uh, I kind of look at it like that guy was so much better than I was. Right. Harvard Law grad. I think he graduated from Stanford before that. You know, uh, he was a major in the Marines. I mean, the, the guy was stellar at everything he did. And, and, and he got killed over there. Yeah. But I didn't. You know, I came home. Yeah. So uh, you got to try to try to live the best life you can live for them. That's you know, exactly uh, what I, I always say. Is, yeah, you know, that, is, uh, yep, yep. It, it, Forrest Lehman was married at that time. His wife was pregnant. You know, <laughs> uh, she was pregnant when, when this incident happened in '09, and uh, and we lost Force. Force never got to see his kid. You know, <sighs> I got I, I got to come home and see my kid. You know, so I mean, you 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 got to live the best life you can live and, and uh, live for them. You got to carry the torch, man. Yeah, that's that's what I always say. I mean, me and me and my some of the guys like on on my SWAT team were uh, combat vets, and we were in Iraq, Afghanistan, whatever, wherever the theater we were in, and that's always been our theme, no matter what is, you know, you know, I wear the, the morning band for, you know, the guys that we lost in, 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 uh, in Iraq, and there's uh, 13 names on the here, and every single one of those names 
you know, it's, it's a reminder that I'm supposed to do what they can't do anymore. And I'm going to honor them that way. Just like when I jumped, you know, did the airborne jumps out of the plane as a civilian, I did it for them, you know, because this is what they would want me to do. They wouldn't want me to just stop, you know, because that's not our personality type. Our personality type are built off resilience. And like you said, you're, you know, literally their uh, war for your four is not under fire. You know, if you're that, if you're in that type of unit that is always out there, always working, doing stuff, doing ops, you're 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 baptized essentially by fire. And uh, one of our medics, uh, uh, great quote one day, we were just kind of, it was one of those exhausting like we've been on ops nonstop, and it was just we were just exhausted. We came back to the fob, and we're all like dusty, and you know, just all all fucked up, and you know, we embrace the suck because it's we're you know, it sucks together, you know, and, and, you know, we were sitting there and he looks around he's like, you know, every day we play a game with death. The minute we step out that side, that gate, I was, and, and, you know, I was like, yeah, you know what? You're right. It's like, no matter what we do, it's like, whether, you know, when, when Allers, uh, died, William Allers, uh, he was, uh, one of the guys in the squad where, um, it was one of those things where we went out on a mission and he was supposed to go left we were supposed to go right on the fork. Then it got switched last minute, just for some reason got, you know, Hey, no, no, I'll go right. You guys go left. Okay. You know, whatever. Roger that. We did that. He gets hit by ID and gets killed and never meets his kid. That's born shortly after, you know, and it's like, why did that happen to him? You know, that, that could have, that should have been us to me. It should have been, you know, that that's that survivor's guilt that, that we always talk about right. is where, man, that should have been me. You know, part of me, part of us is like, yeah, we're glad. One, we're glad it wasn't us. Two, we're also sad that it wasn't us because that's a brother that died. But at the same time, right, hypothetically, it, like thinking about it, your brother that did take it for you yeah. would say the same thing for you. Oh, yeah, no, I, I know. You know. That's I mean? the thing. It's it's that eternal battle no matter what right. you, how you spend. And, and the only way I think us as as, as even uh, even Jack, I'll put you in that side, uh, as a combat veteran, um, you, you understand that, you know, especially, like you have this unique perspective, especially being a, a, a you know, law enforcement in the U.S., but you have that unique, pers- you know, perspective where, you've been downrange and you've seen the hardships and you've seen the frustrations and the victims and everything to go with it. You know, the soldiers that got hurt and, and you, and your guys that got hurt and killed. So you, you kind of got this combined look at what the world is like outside the U S and inside the U S it's, it's, it's like, you, you know, you did this holistic approach, so to speak in your career where you essentially as a law enforcement off, uh, agent uh, officer, you did it all. You know, in, in one, in, in, in the, within the 20 years that we were at war and you understand that perspective though, you know? So, so when, you know, actually I wanted to ask when you came home, finally, you know, coming home and, you know, working your, you know, the regular cases that DEA works over here at home, did you find it boring or did you find it like uh, a little more relaxing to work these types of cases versus what you were doing in Afghanistan, Iraq? I, I, you know, I, w- I was lucky. Uh, I, when I came home in 19, uh, I got to actually come home where I'm from. Uh, you know, uh, I was the uh, assistant special agent in charge of uh, uh, all the officers in West Virginia and then uh, had a few counties over in uh, northeastern Kentucky. And uh, so I was I was living in my hometown uh, then, which was very unusual. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
for us in our career to get to come home. So I, towards the end of my career, I got to come home. You know, it. I wouldn't say it was boring. It was just different. Yeah. You know, um, uh, it, everything has its own set of challenges. I wouldn't say it was boring. It was just different. Yeah. You know, uh, are you? I miss walking up the ramp of a helicopter, you know, <laughs> uh, flying off to go do something somewhere. I miss that, yeah. you know, every now and then. Yeah. But, uh, but you, but, but you fill your time with, with, with other things you like to do, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, I would have probably retired probably, I don't know, a uh, year and a half or so ago. Uh, I was kind of ready to go. And then, uh, 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 Louisville, uh, the division decided to form a SRT team and I, I, I got asked to, to do that. So I, I hung around uh, a little over, uh, uh, more than a year getting that stood up and formed and, uh, getting it operational. And, uh, you know, I got to be part of the team again. So, uh, so it, it was a good thing. I, I mean, uh, I, I've seen a lot of guys and, and I'm not just talking DEA, I'm talking law enforcement in general. When they retire, they go out bitter and cynical and pissed off. And that's not me, brother. I'm grateful. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful. Uh, I got to do the, I got to live out my boyhood dream. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, I got to walk giants in the, uh, federal law enforcement and, and, and soft community. So I'm, I'm, I'm grateful as I can be. You did all that and you ended up on the right side of the dirt, bro. Yeah, I got, I, you know, I'm one of the lucky ones. I get, I, I get to see the flip side of the coin now, you know, and, and, if I want to sleep late now, I sleep late. You know? <laughs> if I want to sit up late, I sit up late. That's the thing. When I when I was scheduling when, when I was scheduling the uh, the the uh, uh, podcast with him, he's I was like, hey, so what's your day look like? He's like, man, I'm on retire time. You you tell me what to, awesome. you tell me when you want me on. I, I can't like, wait. I was like, God damn it, I'm jealous. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> Where I can say, yeah, man, I'm on retire time. You tell me, you, you just give me a time and I'll be there. But it can't be before 10 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> so, Jack, listen, man, we got we got a couple of more minutes. The floor is yours. We have tens of thousands of listeners. Again, remember, military, law enforcement, combat vets, civilians, people that hate the police even fucking listen to our show. You got a couple of minutes. This is your platform. Say what you want to say, brother. Well, I, you know, I, I think we covered it. I mean, uh, there's a story here uh, that, that the general public been really about, you know, uh, it needs to be told, you know, uh, what federal law enforcement did after 9-11 and uh, how they uh, uh, there was a marriage with the with the uh, U.S. and NATO special operations communities and, uh, you know, how they uh, uh, took the fight to uh, to enemies of our country, you know, um, uh, it's. The military story's been told, the uh, other agency story's been told, but but what happened uh, with the federal law enforcement community and, and uh, the people that stepped up and uh, did that, uh, it, it's something that the general public needs to know, and, and, and we need to honor those guys. So that that's something I wanted to come on here. Um, you, you don't hear a whole lot about this, and, and I appreciate you guys letting me come on here and talk and, and kind of get the word out. Um, you know, it's just it's just not talked about enough. No. And and Jack, I, I just want to make sure people know that you are writing a book about this and it's going to be, you know, it's 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 making its way to be published. It's it's a project uh, uh, ongoing right now. Um, you know, I, I, I was really back and forth on. Uh, on if I wanted to do it or not. And uh, I had a lot of people I respect tell me, oh, man, you got to write this. You got to write this. 
And uh, I, I'm kind of like, nobody wants to read about me, you know. And then uh, a guy I really respect, uh, the sheriff here in, in my home county, uh, he told me one day, he said, you know, you need to write that for the guys that didn't come back. You know? uh, so make so, sure, so, make sure yeah, you get it out to us. It's a project. Yeah, I will. We'll do. Because we'll, we'll plaster the shit out of it as much as we can just to, I mean, just to get people aware. That's half of why we do this show is just awareness yeah. for a lot of people. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, Jack, man, thank you so much for and, coming and, on the show, the dude. you guys are doing, getting the word out, it's amazing. Yeah, dude, listen, and, any, and, and anything, absolutely anything you need, you let us know. You obviously have our contact info because, I mean, this is how we got together, so... Mm. Um, stick around for a minute until after I do this outro. We, we've got to talk about a couple of things. And um, thank you very much, man. Yeah, thank you. Guys, Project Sapiens. Yeah, I'm in know. fantastic show again, brother. Yeah, no, I truly uh, appreciate the, uh, you know, talking to uh, to Jack. I mean, what, what history? One thing that I got out of this whole show reminded me of the Reagan uh, fucking quote. Yep. There's no limit to the amount of good you can do if you don't care who gets the credit. Exactly. Fucking amazing, man. Thanks to our thousands of listeners across the globe, maybe even some in Afghanistan. (laughs) ProjectSapient.org. Shoot us an email, ProjectSapient2020 at gmail.com. Thanks to our supporters, DCD Automotive, Till Valhalla, AAA Police Supply, Havoc Journal, our partners of the Profile and Havoc Podcast, Fit Cops, 22 Mohawks, and don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And if you guys don't like us, stop being rats and go fuck yourselves. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> Stay safe. Stay sapient.